welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Indus with me, Joe Wallen. And me, Tashar Shetty. So you're joining us this week where we have some very, very exciting news. Uh, so I'm going to throw this one over to Tashar to tell you a little bit more. So the reason me and Joe started this podcast is because we wanted to give our listeners an unbiased deep dive analysis into one of the most interesting regions in the world, South Asia. And over the few weeks that we've been releasing episodes, you guys have made us a phenomenal success. We have been top of the charts in all South Asian countries, with the exception of Bangladesh for some reason, in the news and politics podcast categories. And moving forward, we want to continue to give you guys analysis and insights from some of the region's best thinkers, politicians, and leaders in South Asia. And Joe and I think that we found the perfect home from where we can take that forward. So without further ado, I think it brings both to shout out great excitement and hopefully yeah, for you as well as our listeners to announce that we'll be producing Beyond the Indus for The Diplomat going forward. I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners are avid readers of The Diplomats, one of the world's leading current affairs magazines that focuses specifically on Asia and Pacific. So this is our very first episode in Our New Home and we're delighted that you can all join us. And we'd like to thank Shannon and the team at The Diplomat for all their support. And we hope we can continue bringing you, our listeners, the kind of quality and subject matter detail that you've come to expect and hopefully even improve it in the future. So without further ado, let's get down to what we do best, talking about geopolitics. So how are you, Tisha? Yeah, all good, all good. It's uh, record temperatures now in Bombay, so uh, we're all eagerly awaiting the monsoon. And yeah, Joe, a lot of news going on in India right now. Uh, have you seen this new parliament that we have, this fancy new parliament that's just opened up? It's been difficult to miss, uh, I, I have to say. Um, I've, been, I've been over in Germany the last week, and it even made headline news over that. So for foreign listeners, India has just opened up its new parliament. And this new parliament, it, it's sort of a symbol of India's new rising, or at least Modi is trying to project it that way. It's uh, an architectural marvel. It's got a lot of historical artifacts from different regions in India. It has a map of ancient Indian sites. It's almost a museum to Indian culture and history. And what was particularly interesting for me was the way Modi opened up his new parliament. And have you heard of this Sengal thing, the whole like scepter that he's installed in the parliament? Yeah, was this the one that um, Nehru was given by the British? Was this the was this the one that's been on the news? Or is this- so that that part is a bit more controversial. Historically, the records are kind of unclear as far as you know. I've researched it, but. What's true is that that Sengal or that scepter was used in the Chola kingdom down south uh, in the 1300s to symbolize a transfer of power. So he basically retrieved this 14th century scepter and he sort of consecrated that scepter in the new parliament. In fact, there are photos of him sort of bowing down to it, like lying on the floor, which has attracted some derision from the opposition. But I think it sort of gives a view into the BJP mindset. I think India, politically at least, is very much a British creation um, in terms of the way we organize our democracy, our institutions. And the BJP is really pushing this sort of Indianization of our institutions. You've seen that with the way Modi's referred to the parliament as a temple of democracy. You've seen his push with regional and local languages, the increased use of Hindi, for instance, in government communications. So that process of Indianization is very much on priority for the BJP. Uh, I don't know, Joe, what did you think about it? So it certainly, it certainly divides opinion, I think, in, in India and, and abroad. I mean, I, I definitely understand the, the need or the desire, um, I think, from Modi and the BJP to to have a new parliament, one without the, the British colonial connotations. But th- this has come at a cost of $1.7 billion 
which will be spent over four years redeveloping as part of Delhi, the, the central vista. So as a result, this has then attracted a, a lot of criticism saying that this money could have been spent elsewhere or certainly a proportion of this money could have been spent elsewhere. As part of the, the project, um, there will be a, a mansion which, which Mr. Modi, I believe, will, will live in. And at a time when you know India remains one of the world's lowest spenders on public health care, for example, you know, could some of this money have been funneled through through different channels? That seems to be the, the crux of the debate. So yeah, the opposition has brought up the cost of this entire redevelopment several times in the past year or so. And in fact, several opposition parties have boycotted the opening of the parliament. But their reason for doing so, at least in their public statements, is not the cost. Uh, it's more that they claim that the president of India, Draupadi Murmu, should have opened the new parliament rather than the prime minister. And I think this also sort of points to a problem with the opposition strategy against Modi. Because a lot of opposition leaders, for instance, Omar Abdullah of the Jammu and Kashmir National Congress and Shashi Thor, have been reluctant to criticize the building and opening of the new parliament because they feel like it's something that the Indian public wouldn't necessarily resonate with. Uh, so that does point to some difficulties for the opposition's campaign against Modi in 2024. But I think there's one bit of news that's coming out of this new parliament opening that I think we ought to pay attention to. And that's the protest by several of India's award-winning gold medalist wrestlers against the current chief of the Wrestling Federation of India, uh, Brij Bhushan Singh. And basically, they're accusing him of um, sexual harassment, sexual assault. And they've been protesting for a while near the old parliament building. And even as the new parliament building was consecrated and the wrestlers tried to move their protest to the new spot, they were sort of detained or stopped for by the police. And I think this story is something that's going to pick up because it, it's very difficult for Modi to portray these award-winning wrestlers in a negative light. But Modi is standing firm. He does not seem to initiate any major action against the head of the wrestling federation. What do you think, Joe? Uh, you think the story is going to develop in the coming weeks or do you think it's going to be another failed protest against Modi? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really, really good one to watch um, here here in India. Um, we've seen, we've seen the, the protests uh, which began earlier this year, you know, sort of really galvanised and grow grow in size over over the last month. Uh, and I think for me, what's significant, as you mentioned, is is the fact that this can't be sort of maligned as as uh, an anti as a political push against the BJP or Modi. These are the India sporting heroes. Um, so the government has had to tread very very carefully, and we've had these quite powerful visuals of of kind of Olympic medal winning wrestlers being kind of violently detained or, or held police, um, which again is really, I noticed a big shift, a further shift in public sympathy towards those those protesting. Um, and it, it mirrors again kind of major public demonstrations that we've seen in India over the last few years, which, which seems to have galvanized big public support. We've had uh, Rakesh Therese, um, who was a, 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 a significant figure in the farmers protester in India. Uh, kind of joining the wrestlers um, over the last couple of weeks. We've seen kind of major opposition politicians from those in Congress to the AAP also visiting the protest site in Delhi. And so I think this has the potential to grow uh, out of the specific protest against the wrestling chief into one that becomes a, a larger anti-BJP protest. So certainly you want to watch. I mean, I do hope that their demands are met and there's some sort of a serious investigation launched against this guy. The problem is that Bridge Bhusan Singh, the head of the Wrestling Federation of India, is also a very important politician in eastern Uttar Pradesh. 
Uttar Pradesh is the largest state in India, and it's basically the key to any party winning Indian elections. Uh, it has the most number of constituencies. And Mr. Singh is extremely influential in six constituencies in that state. So considering the BJP's lost in Karnataka already, Mr. Modi is going to be very careful before alienating any sources of potential votes for the upcoming 2024 general election. It's been it's been a busy week uh, across the Indian political political spectrum. Uh, Rahul Gandhi, uh, India's probably most best known or, or senior opposition politician, is currently on a visit to the United States. He'll be there for, for ten days. Now, with the Congress Party seemingly riding a wave of resurgent popularity in India, as Tush mentions, triumphing in Karnataka and in Himachal Pradesh at the end of last year, it's significant that Mr. Gandhi is in the US. So we've seen this when Mr. Modi has visited the United States before, he's enjoyed considerable support amongst the American India diaspora, famously speaking with Trump at the Howdy Modi events. And Mr. Gandhi also seems to be enjoying popular support this time around. He spoke at California's Stanford University yesterday, where he said his party was struggling to fight the democratic fight in India. And so she seems to be enjoying the opportunity to be outside of the country to poke a bit of fun at his rival, Mr. Modi. Well, yes, that's true. But I would also add that he is getting away with a lot of statements that I don't think would have been advisable if he made them in India. Uh, as you know, in India, the defamation laws here are pretty liberally used by the current government against uh, any opposition figures or characters that they don't like. But what I do find interesting about this visit, as well as Mr. Modi's coming visit in the next few weeks, is sort of how both political parties in India are looking increasingly to have closer ties and greater influence in America. And I think that's part of a very deliberate strategy. You know, we've seen through this whole Ukraine conflict, uh, one might be misled into thinking that we are moving towards a more non-aligned position. But I think that in the longer term, we are getting more and more closely aligned to the U.S., and in fact, there was a really interesting article by Adam Tews, The Economist, who pointed to the growing trend in the U.S. where there's a bipartisan consensus that they're moving from a more globalization framework, which they believe was a huge mistake, which benefited China, to a more bilateral selective approach to trade and defense. And I don't think India can maintain its sort of neutral non-land approach for long. I think India is going to be increasingly roped in to the U.S. security and trade umbrella. And I think that's what is going to be reflected in Mr. Modi's visit on 21st June. So Joe, how much do you know about Bitcoin? Now, this is a very, very good question. So many, many years ago, I was the Forbes cryptocurrency correspondent, or crypto correspondent, as it were. Uh, I think we're looking six or seven years ago now, but I think both, both myself and our listeners could do with, with a bit of a refresher. Well, that's fantastic because I just went through all five stages of grief when I was looking this up. But to sort of summarize it for our listeners, Bitcoin emerged in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008. And the idea basically was to create this sort of decentralized currency, which was not controlled by any government or the financial institutions that had, in people's view, caused the crisis. And to give a short summary, basically the way it's set up is that the information about all the transactions is stored in a decentralized form, 
across all the users in the network. And every time there's a transaction happening, there's a sort of equation created that all the computers in the server compete to find the solution to. And the one that finds the solution the fastest or the correct solution, they're rewarded with Bitcoin. So they actually paid to be part of this transaction. So that's how Bitcoin is paid to these people. But the downside is as more and more people have come on this network and more and more transactions happen, these equations have become increasingly complex and it takes a lot of computing power to solve these equations, which means that instead of having individual users in their home computers solving these equations, now this is graduated to massive server farms that consume an incredible amount of power, uh, which needs a lot of electricity. So Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies certainly have their advantages, uh, but are massively energy intensive. Uh, over the last year, uh, Bitcoin mining alone generated more power than the entire nation of Norway and Argentina, which is a pretty remarkable statistic. So in 2017, China was the hub for global Bitcoin manufacturing. Over 70% of all the Bitcoins mined were done in China, and a substantial portion of them were in the northwestern region of Xinjiang, historically part of the Silk Road and more contemporaneously the site of several human rights abuses. China decided to crack down on Bitcoin mining, however, in 2017, partly because it put serious strains on the electricity grid, but also because China has very strict capital controls and Bitcoin was rapidly becoming a means through which Chinese citizens could transfer money abroad. So as China slowly cracked down on production, many of these Bitcoin miners decided to move to the neighboring state of Kazakhstan. Now, Kazakhstan shared a lot of the advantages that these miners found in Xinjiang. It had a cool climate, it had access to plentiful cheap electricity, and what started to grow there was a large, unregulated Bitcoin mining industry. This had devastating consequences for Kazakhstan. The electricity grid experienced several failures, and in 2021, repeated blackouts led to severe protests which almost toppled the government. So after Kazakhstan took the decision to reduce some of these Bitcoin mining operations, the Bitcoin industry was looking for an alternate location, somewhere that had cool climate and cheap electricity, which are acquired for their server farms to operate efficiently. And that's how Bhutan comes into the story. So today, our focus is moving away from the crisis in Pakistan and away from politics in India, and also a South Asia country that we haven't yet focused on. It's Bhutan, uh, a country probably most famous in the West for its gross domestic happiness policy, known as the Hermit Kingdom and ruled over by the Wangchuk dynasty. It was an absolute monarchy until 2008, when it became a parliamentary democracy. It has since seen a pivot away from gross domestic happiness, and more decisions have been made by economic policymakers. Now, the country has certainly undergone economic success as a result. The poverty rate in Bhutan has declined from 36% in 2007 to 9% in 2019. And Bhutan is now hitting the headlines for a rather surprising new region. It was the last country in the world to legalize and introduce the internet in 1999, and is now attempting to reinvent itself as a cryptocurrency, or more specifically, a Bitcoin hub. So in early May, Bhutan's National Sovereignty Fund, Druk Investment Holdings, announced a $500 million tie-up with Bitdia, a Singaporean-based tech company that works with cryptocurrency miners. The news did come as a shock. Bhutan is one of the least developed countries in Asia, and to spend this sum on Bitcoin mining alone, which does bring with it substantial risks, raised eyebrows both in Bhutan and overseas. But the country does have several factors in its favour when it comes to Bitcoin mining, which our guest on today's show will cover shortly. 
There have certainly been rumours about Bhutan's involvement in cryptocurrency for many years. Rumours have been rife amongst the journalism world, certainly in South Asia. And in a Forbes article earlier this year, also cited that the DHI, Bhutan's sovereign fund, had held millions in cryptocurrencies with two now bankrupt lenders, BlockFi and Celsius, although the Bhutanese authorities have since denied this. Separately, though, a Bhutanese official has told our first guest, who is certainly a man to know in Bhutan, that the Bhutanese authorities had been dabbling in crypto for several years, although the details are clandestine. Stay tuned. So this week, we're joined by Tenzing Lamsung, the editor of the Bhutanese, Bhutan's largest private newspaper. Mr. Lamsung is Bhutan's most famous investigative journalist and has regularly worked with major international publications like the New York Times and the BBC as well as writing articles for regional outlets like The Wire and Indian Express. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today, Mr. Lamsang. How are you? Uh, I'm good, and thank you for inviting me on this uh, podcast. Brilliant. And, and where, are you, where are you at the moment? Are you, are you in Timpu? Yes, yes. Fantastic. Okay, so the first question we can jump into it, is there's a lot of excitement about this deal that's been agreed between Bhutan's sovereign wealth fund, the Drug Investment Holdings, and Bitdia. You know, how has Bhutan already been investing in Bitcoin? And what will we see now following the signing of this deal? Okay, so Bhutan's uh, our investment arm or the commercial arm of the government, the Druk Holdings and Investment recently signed uh, an agreement with Bitdia to create a $500 million, to raise $500 million in funds for Greenfield uh, a Digital Assets Mining Project uh, in Bhutan. So before this deal, actually Bhutan had already invested its own funds and uh, we've been uh, doing mining on the quiet for some time now uh, until Forbes found found out, I guess. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, I mean, uh, an open secret, so to speak, within Bhutan, but uh, Forbes kind of brought it out officially. So we've been doing this for a while and the deal is basically a plus from there. So because Bhutan was serious and putting its own money and infrastructure and investment, I think it started attracting international attention. Uh, and interest. And that's where Bitdeer comes in with a credible and established track record. And so this fund is essentially to bring in, uh, you know, equipment and all of that. So the Bhutanese government or the DHI will provide the land, will provide the electricity, the infrastructure, the legal policy, everything. And Bitdeer will bring in especially leverage on the funding part. And uh, where Bhutan benefits is that in terms of we will be selling our power at dollar rates to the project, we will be getting a share of the prof profits and there'll be some, some degree of job generation, a foreign currency generation. Uh, and then this investment, the money that will come out of it, the technology that will be involved will also help in uh, giving uh, you know a spark to our other digital uh, ventures like AI, uh, um, machine learning, Internet of Things, in which uh, Bhutan is very interested. So, Mr. Lamsung, um, $500 million, that's the value of the deal, as you mentioned. And that's around one-fifth to one-sixth of Bhutan's gross domestic product. I think it would instantly catapult Bhutan to the largest per capita producer of Bitcoin. So, I just want to ask, why Bhutan? What are the advantages of using Bhutan for crypto mining? Uh, why have they chosen your country? Uh, Bhutan has some unique geographical as well as uh, from uh, in terms of uh, also surplus energy advantages for crypto mining. The energy surplus advantage is that especially in the summer month, since uh, we our entire power supply and consumption is uh, sustainable because they are run of the river hydro projects. So in summer, we get a huge surplus of power in summer and uh, we don't know what to do with that power. A, a lot of it is uh, exported to India. Uh, so instead of just exporting raw power, you know, we could use some of it to do digital assets mining or crypto mining. 
So that is the power advantage. And then there is potential to build more power projects in the future. Uh, the other advantage is geographical because, uh, as you know, mining requires a lot of cooling uh, of the machines, uh, the computers involved. Uh, so from what I know, our higher terrain and cooler terrain uh, will, uh, you know, uh, reduce the air conditioning bills for these machines. So I think that there is that geographical and power surplus advantage. Apart from that, we don't really have much of a choice because we're a mountainous country. We're not suitable for large-scale commercial agriculture. We don't have the plain hotel planes like India or or even Nepal for that matter, you know. Then uh, we are landlocked. We don't have the seaports of Singapore or, or Sri Lanka or, or the nice beaches of Maldives, you know. So we are landlocked. Uh, we are, in fact, the world's most mountainous country. Uh, there's literally, uh, I think, 98 point something percent mountains, you know, and hills. So there, there, so there isn't much of a choice for us as well, you know. So when opportunities open up like this, I think this is where we put in our money. Yeah, and I think it would bring a tremendous amount of change to Bhutan. I mean, uh, a lot of Westerners have a bit of an idyllic image of the kingdom. But I think uh, this will bring a considerable number of benefits to Bhutan. And could you elaborate on some of those benefits? And also, what does Bhutan plan to do with the money, perhaps, that is coming in because of this investment and uh, potential future dividends? So digital assets mining or crypto mining is a low-hanging fruit for us uh, on the tree of the fourth industrial revolution, you know. So basically, this is a start to Bhutan's uh, ambitions to go higher up the tree or higher up the ladder in terms of technology. Because what we realized, as I mentioned earlier, we can't compete agriculture-wise, industry-wise. Uh, we don't have the land, the resources, the people. We are landlocked, you know. So the only area where we can compete with bigger countries is in terms of technology because that doesn't require you to have a large population or be a big country, all of that, you know. You just need to have focused attention on the sectors. So Bhutan is trying to get in, uh, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's not early, but we're trying to get, for us, it's early, getting in a bit early and, you know, get, a, get an advantage and then use the resources that we get from crypto mining. First of all, it helps us with the revenue, government revenue in terms of foreign exchange. Yes, these are the obvious benefits, but also use a part of that for further investments in the digital economy. Uh, as I mentioned, AI, uh, um, machine learning and, you know, the, all the higher end uh, things that, that are there in this uh, uh, digital economy. Uh, then apart from that, I think the benefit also is that uh, uh, there is now uh, our whole education system is undergoing a lot of reforms to make it more tech savvy. Uh, there's, uh, for example, computer coding being introduced right from uh, class PP, you know, primary uh, uh, school. We have uh, code monkey. So kids are taught. So the end goal is not just to have machines running, uh, consuming a lot of power and, you know, uh, generating hashing and generating bitcoins or Ethereum or whatever. But to have a population that at the same time uh, is educated uh, in this digital economy and then we can generate quality jobs when we go further up the ladder in the digital economy uh, and quality jobs and, and, and that of course brings in the revenue and, and everything else. So, so yes, this is, uh, there are a lot of benefits uh, when we take the long view on this. Right. And that's an incredible push. I mean, you're leapfrogging the second and third industrial revolution, you know, to go right yeah. into the fourth and transform Bhutan as, as a state in the future. But we have seen some experiments in this area go awry. For instance, Bitcoin mining was huge in China as well as certain parts of Russia before it was discovered that this is taking too much of their energy supply. And uh, these were banned in those countries. Bitcoin mining was banned there. And most recently, we've seen the situation in Kazakhstan, which at one point 
was the second largest Bitcoin miner in the world because of similar advantages, cheap electricity, uh, decent weather, etc. And it led to massive blackouts and even sparked a series of protests uh, in that country. So do you think the government and uh, the agencies involved are aware of these challenges? Have they prepared for challenges and setbacks like that? And what do you think are the potential repercussions of this new approach? Um, yeah, I think your Kazakhstan uh, example is is a is a good one uh, and a recent one for that matter. So I think what went wrong in Kazakhstan was that it was a regulatory and uh, governance failure also. And uh, I think uh, things were happening under the table as well. They didn't do a proper uh, due diligence on how much power can be shared with these companies, and there were others doing it on the sly. Uh, and I think that totally wrecked the grid, and uh, there were blackouts and all of that, which led to the protests and and, and other factors were also involved. So in the case of Bhutan, the only mining that's happening in Bhutan is under DHI right now. So there's no other players. So this is very tightly controlled by the government so that you don't have uh, some uh, mine coming up somewhere and then, uh, you know, uh, leading to pressure on the grid. That's one. Uh, and even the investment in Bitia is strictly through the government, through the DHI. So this is uh, something which is considered as a very strategic project. And uh, the private sector, so to speak, hasn't been allowed into it yet. So the, the second approach is that uh, the priority for selling the power will be first to our domestic consumers like households and industries. And the left only the leftover power will be given to the crypto mining or the digital assets mining. So that priority is very clear. So in uh, what happens is that sometimes in summers, because when the rivers run really low in the, in the eastern Himalayas, the power production uh, sometimes goes down. And at that time, the mines that we have right now shut down. You know, if they can, if the power rate in India is low, uh, then they, they import power. But if it is too high, then they shut down. So even the uh, this big tier project that's coming up, it has a provision that it will operate full capacity in the summer months and the monsoon months when there's power production is higher. And in the winter months, if and when the power production goes down, the sustainable power production, it will it has a provision for shutting down as well. So to ensure that local supply is not hampered. So I think, uh, yeah, so I think we want to definitely avoid the Kazakhstan uh, episode and this will be well regulated. Uh, there'll be uh, transparency around this and uh, and the, the priority will always be the domestic industries and uh, the domestic households. And after that, only if anything's left over, it'll be given to them. Right. I mean, I think for, for many of our listeners, that they're, they're most familiar with Bhutan because of its gross domestic happiness policy, uh, which is something that's been well documented over, over the years. Uh, so the country's rule is sort of focusing more on development-based politics rather than on, on purely economics. I mean, what has been the reaction amongst the, the Bhutanese people to the news? Are people excited? Okay. Uh, so the the reaction has uh, because initially when the news came out in Forbes there was a certain degree of panic because it came out uh, in relation to I think uh, two I think entities which were I think BlockFi and Celsius then they had gone to two cryptocurrency lenders and they had gone bankrupt and because they went bankrupt they whatever their transactions had become public record so the first fear in Bhutan was that oh no we've uh, you know we've been buying our DHI has been covertly trading in crypto to assets and we've uh, lost a lot of money you know but uh, because the limited information that Forbes had so they had to go with that uh, little borrowing and, and, and to be fair even the Forbes didn't say that Bhutan lost a lot of money just that Bhutan has been transacting but what we subsequently learned was that it was a uh, short-term loan and uh, it was paid back in full so it was no loss of our assets uh, so to speak and the DHI subsequently clarified that uh, there was no loss for the DHI so what then, because of the Forbes article, DHI was forced to come out and publicly acknowledge that it is in fact not engaged in uh, crypto trading, but in uh, crypto mining. 
so when the public came to find out it's mining then there was relief that okay so it's uh, when that because i think crypto trading would be really 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 risky uh, and that would not be advisable as well um given the bust that we've seen so when it comes mining it comes with our as i mentioned the earlier natural advantages so the risk is much lower for us and also i think going back to the uh, the kazakhstan example in terms of risk so this deal with bitdia dhi is listed as a strategic limited partner which essentially means that dhi will only be investing a very limited amount of its own money or our own money so to speak and uh, so we will not have a lot of financial exposure to the project you know so because we are providing the land we are providing the regulatory framework we are selling the power the power won't be for free so we have those advantages so uh, and uh, so that's where the risk element uh, is kind of risk management is already built into these projects so i think uh, once the public understood that there is more positivity for the project and of course like in any issue there are always two schools of thought there's one school of thought which i call the more traditional uh, mindset that oh this is like a gambling uh, thing you know and uh, how can we get into it look at the crash that happened and one is the more younger lot which includes uh, myself uh, the more uh, we we uh, i mean at this given our stage of development and where we are at and our obvious disadvantages and advantages i feel that it's a calculated risk not risk but calculated risk worth taking so if we've done our calculation if we've looked at our advantages and don't expose ourselves too much uh, i think it's a risk worth taking for for now sure i i think as you say for for me that it, it is a, is a calculated risk for pitsalm the country having um you know the world's sort of most abundant supply of hydropower you know a young population around 26% of its citizens you say quite a tech savvy workforce as well i think when we spoke before tensing you you mentioned how, how many young bitsanese have been been working abroad in recent years in australia and in europe uh, and become very very tech savvy um i think the the main risk for me is looking at that pl- the price fluctuation and we've seen bitcoin hit an all time high of about $65,000 uh, in 2021 but that then plummeted to to just over $6,000 following the war in ukraine and we're now at around $27,000 um it's in terms of, kind of the, the manufacturing costs i mean it's estimated at the moment uh to be anywhere around 10 to sort of $17,000 to to mine one bitcoin I, i guess my greatest concern would be if if we do see these drops or we do see these 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 fluctuations and the price falls the government could lose some money something in the short term on yeah. on, its, on its manufacturing i mean do you think if that does happen uh, kind of production will be suspended at least in the interim uh, until prices recovered so i think we are i think uh, bhutan is aware of the highs and lows of uh, bitcoin but according to uh, dhi basically there is an awareness that bitcoin is in a bit of a bear territory right now but the expectation is that it is always better to invest in an investment class when it is on the lower end of the price so for example um, uh, bhutan entered uh, crypto mining or uh, bitcoin mining uh, when bitcoin i think it it hit around uh, $5000 uh the price and uh now it's reached uh, $37,000 right of course it went to 30 and came back to 27 so basically uh, there is an awareness of uh, the the volatility of the thing but one one other expectation is that in 2024 next year uh there will be something that's called the halving where the number of coins will go down by half i think uh, will decrease from 6.25 to 3.25 3.125 bitcoins per block mined you know so once the halving happens in uh, 2024 the value of bitcoin is expected to go up so this is expected to be a, a a bull run of sorts so yeah i think that is factored in but like i said it's a risk uh, that 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 we've taken and uh, a calculated risk as that and uh, you know uh, uh, it's about the trust in the technology trust in the investment uh, uh, class and i think uh, 
you'll have to cross your fingers and see. Absolutely. I think everything everything crossed across from my side uh, as well for, for you all in, in Bhutan with the investment. I just as a, a final question uh, for, from me, do we have an idea at this moment in time uh, who, the, who the Bhutanese authorities might then look to sell the, the, their Bitcoin to? Is, is this public knowledge at this point? Um, not right now because, uh, but okay, what I know is that the DHI has revealed that it only deals through well-known and credible exchange where the KYC or Noria customers are very strong. So I think the exchanges that it deals through will be the very credible uh, ones. Uh, uh, but to whom it will sell, I think that that's not clear yet. But of course, if it is sold, it will be sold in the open market, I'm sure. I, I have one more question just before we end this interview. And you've highlighted how this um, seems to be part of a broader plan you know, to diversify Bhutan's economy from just hydropower and agriculture uh, into more technology. I'm interested in the politics of all this because Bhutan has traditionally had a very isolationist approach. And now there seems to be a concerted push to get Bhutan um, into these new sectors. And I wonder where that push is coming from. Bhutan has, to my mind, a very progressive and forward-looking king. Uh, but tell me, uh, what is the strategy? What are the economic trends we might see in Bhutan in the upcoming decades? And who, in terms of the government, but who's driving this change? Where's the push for this change coming from? So now I think the first thing to answer here would be, why is this thing happening? Uh, you know, the broader answer I give you was in terms of our obvious geographical disadvantages, our small population, landlocked nature. These are deep and lasting vulnerabilities, uh, as uh, as we know. And then I think the more recent trend is we are seeing a lot of young Bhutanese packing their bags and uh, you know going abroad to Australia, UK. Uh, and they're going mostly as students, but we don't expect a lot of them to come back. So they'll be going there, and there's a labor shortage, a skills shortage in these uh, English-speaking countries, and we have an English medium education here. Um, and I think that um, and uh, is 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 really uh, a, a huge migration crisis happening in Bhutan right now. You know, we're losing a lot of young people, professionals. So what we realized is that the only way to keep our young people here. Uh, and for us to generate quality jobs is the digital uh, economy. And uh, the push for this is coming mainly from uh, His Majesty the King, who uh, is very interested in these uh, technologies and in several of his, what we have our, as our National Day, uh, similar to your, your Republic Day. Uh, as our National Day, we uh, where His Majesty delivers a national address. So that has always been a consistent theme over the years in terms of the importance of bringing in technology into Bhutan and using that to create a high-end economy which can generate jobs for our youth. And by the way, Bhutan is the youngest country in South Asia, younger than India even, you know, which itself is a very young country. And we have a huge, huge youth bulge right now. Uh, and uh, the traditional job generate sectors, which are the government agriculture to a lesser extent, the private sector, which is quite weak in Bhutan, is not cutting it. So our youths are going out for looking for jobs. So I think uh, this is where the motivation as well as the push is both coming from. Fantastic. I think that's all the questions from my side. Uh, Joe? This is everything for me. I, I think just just incredibly interesting. Um, you know, we look at Bhutan as, as the last country in the world, I, I think, to legalize or to introduce the internet in 1999, and now we're discussing Bhutan as, as being right at the forefront of this this crypto revolution. Uh, I think it's absolutely fascinating, and, and a huge thanks, Tenzing, for for joining us on the podcast uh, and explaining both yeah. something to shout out to our listeners about what we might expect in Bhutan over the upcoming years. You know, if I could just uh, give a parting uh, statement. 
you know, in 1999, you're correct that we introduced internet and TV into Bhutan in 1999. Uh, before that, we were <laughs> quite cut off, you know, from this. And it's ironic, ironical that the opening up of Bhutan in 1999 to internet and TV is what fueled globalization in Bhutan. Uh, people started seeing a better life, living standards outside. So the wants kept going up, but the means couldn't catch up, you know, which is why we are in the current crisis of a migration crisis happening. So I think we are trying to turn the thing on its head and use this very uh, technology to uh, uh, leapfrog uh, our economy into the next phase and uh, develop the economy and keep our young people back. So Joe, that was a fascinating interview. And you know what particularly struck me, both in this interview as well as our interview with Mifta Isma, is how countries in South Asia seem to be incredibly clear-headed about changes going on in the world and how they have to rapidly adapt to them by taking massive and transformatory steps if they want to survive. But what do you think about Bhutan's entanglement with Bitcoin? Do you think it's a revolutionary step forward or do you think it's a risky gamble? Well, I think that one remains remains to be seen. Um, it's difficult to have any any certainty uh, on that at the moment, but it is. I think it is certainly to be applauded and re- remarkable that the concept itself. You know, we've seen huge poverty alleviation in Bhutan over the last 10, 10, 15 years, and now using Bitcoin and advances in cryptocurrency to then take that next step for for the population. But I do want to introduce a note of caution here, Joe. So, do you know that there is an official limit on the number of Bitcoin that can be mined ever? It's 21 million. Guess how many Bitcoin have been mined already? Are we, are we close or do we, or do, we have, do we have some roots? It's 19 million. And they're predicting that the rest of the Bitcoin that have to be mined will last until 2140, basically more than 100 years, because of the increasing complexity of the equations involved, which means increasing amounts of power and electricity needed to push these server farms to make a profit. So faced with an investment that could potentially be increasingly unproductive unless Bhutan seriously ramps up its electricity production and the number of servers in its country, this could have long-term environmental consequences for Bhutan. So it remains to be seen whether or not this gamble will reprofit in the long run. So thank you everyone for joining us for today's episode of Beyond the Indus. As always, a busy fortnight of news in the region. We hope you learned something. I certainly did when it comes to cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And we look forward to you all joining us for our sixth episode, uh, which will be coming up on June the 20th. Stay safe and bye.